Hello there, I'm Kate Carpenter, and this is Drafting the Past, a podcast all about the craft of writing history. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome historian Dr. Nathan Pearl Rosenthal. Thanks, it's wonderful to be here. Nathan is a professor of history at the University of Southern California. His first book, Citizen Sailors, Becoming American in the Age of Revolution, came out in 2015. His new book just came out this month, February 2024, from Basic Books. It's called The Age of Revolutions and the Generations Who Made It, and it tells the history of the revolutionary era from 1760 to 1825 across multiple nations and many individual lives. Nathan and I talked about the merits of messy outlines, how historians could borrow the techniques of fiction writers, and why his new book was a bit like making cheese. You'll just have to listen to find out what that's all about. Here's my conversation with Dr. Nathan Pearl Rosenthal. In a sense, I think I may have been a little bit uh, set up for this. Um, there are a lot of books in my in my genealogy, so to speak. My great aunt, my grandfather's sister, was like a pretty prolific author. She did cookbooks, she did children's books, she did YA books. My grandmother published books. On the other side, my grandparents didn't publish books, but they did write them, but they left them in drawers. My father is a writer. My mother is an author. So <laughs> I, I, I don't think it's, you know, you don't inherit these things, but there was certainly the idea all around me that you might publish a book. Uh, it turns out it's a lot harder than just it, they make it look. So that was sort of, I think, you know, I grew up in a family that had lots of writers in it. And I suppose I always thought it was interesting to try to write for, you know, the broadest audience possible, whatever that might be. I mean, in my high school, it meant writing for, you know, trying to write for lots of my peers. And, you know, in graduate school, it meant trying to write not just for my two friends or not just for my advisor, but maybe trying to have a wider, you know, wider audience. And, and I kind of love the discipline of trying to find a way to communicate as a scholar what are, you know, often pretty abstruse, pretty esoteric ideas as much as possible in a fairly accessible way. So I think in a sense, I'm not sure there's a trajectory. It's sort of just like, I think this was what I wanted to do from the start. Maybe I've gotten better at it. I sort of feel like it's always the same struggle in some way, um, you know, to try to take what is in my mind and the insights that I think I might've had or the things that I feel like I've discovered and try to convey them in a way that, you know, other human beings can understand. And that's, yeah, I, I don't, so I don't know if that's a trajectory there. It might just be a kind of idée fixe. Well, let's dig in first to just practical questions. So when and where do you like to do your writing? In theory, I like to do my writing in the morning when I'm fresh and I sit down and I write a page or two. In practice, I spend two hours staring at a blank page and then I go to a cafe. And then in 25 minutes, I do all the writing that I supposedly was supposed to do before. I'm definitely a person who works best with the kind of background noise. It also depends what kind of writing I'm doing, like drafting, I think, or first drafting is often best with some kind of stimulus or, you know, an hour to do it. And just what can you get on the page when it gets to editing, especially the last, let's say 10% there, I feel like I need to be in a cork lined room and left to myself for an indefinite amount of time. Um, and so that's, for me, that's always the, getting it to like 75%, I find pretty easy. Getting to 90% is hard. And then the last 10% is, uh, is like a blood sacrifice, basically, every time I write something, every time, every single time. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like to organize your sources in your work? So I'm, I'm a real primitive, I'm sorry to say. I mean, I have so many friends with such beautiful databases and, you know, they, they use so many of these different tools that have been created and I am still using Word documents. I just kind of love the simplicity of them. So I'll tend to just organize sources chronologically. I will often, if I'm working through an archive or a collection, depending on the size, I'll either just create one Word document that has, you know, transcriptions and notes in it. Or I'll create, you know, multiple ones for individual volumes. And in my defense, you know, because it does sort of sound like, you know, well, why not use note cards? You know, uh, why not carbon paper? You know, I do think that the, the search functions that have been built into laptops are so powerful now that 
basically everything you make is uh, on your computer as a database. And so what I often end up doing is sort of leaving a, a trail of breadcrumbs for myself so that I can find the things that I'm looking for using keyword searches or, you know, Spotlight. But then often I'll end up reorganizing all of the sources that I've taken notes on in chronological order or, you know, in regional. But I, 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 I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty primitive when I do research. I really, I really am. I've tried. I've tried making databases. And it, the, actually, the reason that I don't do it, I don't know, maybe this is getting ahead of ourselves, but the reason that I, one of the things that I don't like about making databases, and again, maybe this is just my limitation as a person who, under, my, under, my limited understanding of databases, but because you have to sort of decide what the fields are at the outset, I always feel like you then approach the sources with a particular set of presumptions about what you're going to find. And I, I kind of like the free play that you get with just taking notes on what's there, which is not to say I'm not claiming that I sit down in front of the sources like a child and let them lead me. But I do think, you know, I have more of a, I feel like there's more free play when you're just taking notes as you go and not trying to figure out how to fit things into a rubric. But I'm sort of always, I, I'm, waiting to, I'm waiting for the day when I say that to someone and they explain to me why I'm totally and utterly wrong. So um, <laughs> if one of your listeners would like to send me an email and explain that to me, I'd be delighted. Is there a point in the research process where you like to start writing? Oh, God, this is another one of these what I do in theory, what I do in practice sort of questions. In theory, as I always tell graduate students when I'm talking to them, you know, it's really good to start writing maybe even a little bit before you think you're ready. Because you want to see, I think, it, you know, the writing, at least for me, helps me organize my thinking. So, you know, if you start, you don't want to start too early, but, you know, you don't want to be done with, quote unquote, done with the research before you start writing, because how do you know what the research is going to consist of? So that's sort of in, in theory, I think that's what you should do. In practice, I think the way it usually ends up happening is I either decide that there's some conference I want to submit a paper to, and I've got to write something up. Or, you know, I get an invitation to give a paper and I'm, I do that unwise thing where I think, oh, this would be a great opportunity to write up X thing. And then, you know, six weeks later, I'm, you know, slamming my head against my desk thinking, why did I say yes to this? <laughs> Every time. Write something up, right? Every time. This is apparently going to be my leitmotif as, you know, I never learned. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do, I always think that there's a kind of iterative or cyclical process where you research, you write you research, you write. I think the more you're able to do that, the better. Because, you know, if you're really engaged in a process of discovery, which is, I hope, I hope what we're doing most of the time, you know, you shouldn't know exactly where you're going to end up until you really get in there. And even until you try to write it up. I, I remember Bernard Balin in one of his he has this little book of where he's being interviewed about his writing process. And he describes uh, Bernard Bailyn, the sort of great uh, 60s, 70s historian of the American Revolution, who recently died just a few years ago. Uh, he was being asked about his sort of magnum opus, The Ideological Origins of the American Revolution. And he describes someone asking him to see the outline he had written. And he brings out the outline. And it's this like, you know, taped together thing with lots of notes on it. And, you know, he's pasted over things. And so, you know, even this book, which, you know, for any, uh, if you've read it, or if your readers have read it, I mean, your listeners have read it, it's, you know, just of an elegance and economy of argument and evidence that's astonishing. And, you know, the outline for this apparently is just like a complete mess. So I think there's, there's a, some, there's some real truth there that, that even, or maybe to arrive at that kind of economy, you actually have to go through a phase that's just you know, an explosion of paper. At least that's what I'm going to keep telling myself. <laughs> no, I like that. So then do you use an outline when you approach drafting? Yeah, I do do outlines. And I, and I tell students to do it as well, for sure. You know, I, I tend not to do very detailed outlines. And I suppose I owe an apology to, to Ms. Meeker, my eighth grade social studies teacher, for being so resistant at the time to learning how to do outlines with all the proper bullet points. Because probably if I had paid closer attention, this would be a lot easier. But, you know, I, I, I think definitely I try to think about, you know, the broad headings that I'm going to deal with and how I want to move from subject to subject. When we talk about the process for the book that's 
coming out, I can say a little bit more about how it was different from the first one. Um, and part of it is about the outlining. But the other thing that I sometimes do, and I always recommend this to students and sometimes even colleagues who are, you know, lost in the, in the wilderness is reverse outlining, which I actually think is an amazing practice. So, you know, where you start with whatever you have written and you try to figure out what the outline of that thing would look like. And it is, it is an amazing, it can be an amazing discipline if you just, you know, you know, something isn't working, but you cannot figure out how it's not working. Just that discipline of going back to an outline format, I think can, can be very powerful. And I, I definitely have done it a few times with both books. I think there were bits where I felt like I needed to work backwards to outline, to try to figure out what it was that I thought I was doing or what it was that I was trying to accomplish and what was missing. I feel like that touches on this question a little bit. What, what does your revision process look like after you've, you've drafted? Um, I have a lot of trouble letting go of things, which is, <laughs> I think, part of the explanation for that, that bloody last 10% of the project. So again, like the sort of rough, the roughing in, I don't, I don't find all that difficult. And I would say my first drafts are usually pretty clean. I mean, I, I, you know, they're fairly readable and fairly coherent generally. I mean, not always, but but I, I can't, I just kind of can't write something that isn't like it doesn't, it just doesn't come out unless I'm writing something that follows to me. Hence, I suppose also that two hours spent in the morning where I don't actually write anything that I was talking about before. But then I often will reread and think, no, you know, this whole section either needs to be somewhere else, or actually this needs to be much longer than it was before. So it's not uncommon for me to do like a pretty significant revision of some substantive part of a of an article or even a book and then and then there's further rounds of you know refining language and jiggering with you know transitions and first and last paragraphs and the mechanics of sentences yeah i i have the disease where i sort of keep trying to do it until much later than i should so every time, you know, every time I'm in proofs, there's always, you know, some sentence that needs to be rewritten in proofs, which you're you know, not really supposed to do. And so far, I've always had good luck with managing editors and the like who've always sort of been like, OK, just this once. If they knew that I had done it with every other piece of thing that I had written, they might, they might be more resistant. But, but I, I don't know. I think it comes from a desire to, you know, not for perfection, since perfection isn't achievable, but you know, a desire to be as clear and as precise and as convincing as possible. And I think every time, at least I read over my own work, I feel like I read it with slightly different eyes. And there's something else that I feel like usually I need to be convinced of, or I need to be, need to make it as persuasive as it, as it can be. So there's, there's always this urge to, to jiggle it a little more. Is there someone you rely on to step in and say, like, no, Nathan, this is good enough. You need to let this go. That's a good idea. Are you volunteering for the job? <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I, I think in the end, I feel like I have to be satisfied myself. So the, the copy editing stage, you know, which is sort of the last opportunity to, to rewrite sections, basically. You know, I really feel like that always takes me a long time and I've got to, whatever, I just have to expect that I'm going to feel frustrated and worried about it and say to myself, I have X amount of time. I'm going to do the very best I can in this amount of time. But you no, know, I think I'm afraid that my, my technique is more, I'm going to take every last minute that's on the clock. Yeah. It would be it would be good to have someone who could step in and say, I think that's enough. When I was preparing for this interview, I was struck to learn that your first book was not your dissertation or not, you know, evolved out of your dissertation, which seems sort of unusual for a historian. Why did you decide to go with a different project? Well, I mean, the first thing to be said is I'm very glad that it worked out, but there was a, an, an, an eminent historian uh, of my acquaintance who I saw her a couple of years uh, after my first book came out. And she said, oh, Nathan, I'm so glad it's worked out for you because when I heard you weren't doing your first book as your dissertation and she just drew her finger across her throat 
silently. <laughs> and she's a good friend. And, you know, so I, I, I took it in the spirit in which it was offered. But, um, but you know, it was, it was somewhat risky. Um, and I was really lucky to have people who were willing to take that risk with me in the university, uh, you know, among the publisher, et cetera, et cetera. So why did I do it? I mean, I did it for two reasons, really. One was that my dissertation, which I think did something important and useful, it was still a, a dissertation and it was trying to, it had to do things in a dissertation-y kind of way. It had to show that I knew how to read sources and could make a convincing argument and could kind of, you know, respond to every reasonable objection. And, and the kind of scope of project that I wanted, the kind of scope of argument that I wanted just wasn't possible in the scope of the dissertation. And I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to have time between that and, you know, the beginning of the tenure process to really turn it into the kind of book that I wanted. And I really thought it would benefit from kind of sitting to the side for a little while and letting my thinking about it mature and develop. And then I had this other project, Happily, which was somewhat advanced, and which I thought, you know, this is a good moment to do this book. Also, maritime history was kind of having a moment, which maybe is still going on. And I thought, you know, this, this is a good project to do first. So that's why I decided to do it that way. And I guess as we're talking about this, you know, I, I guess it actually sort of comes back to the, the, you know, my unwillingness to let things go. You know, I, I, in some ways, the dissertation felt, I mean, it was complete. It was a complete dissertation, but it didn't feel... It was not the complete project that I had wanted to do. I mean, I don't know, maybe we don't ever do the complete project we want to do, but it was far enough from that that I wanted to give myself more time. And this seemed like a way to do that. So that's, that's more or less how I ended up doing that. I mean, you know, this new book is not exactly, in, or in fact at all, the sort of development of the dissertation. There are bits and pieces of the dissertation, the research from the dissertation that are in it, but it's it's a pretty small fraction, maybe 10% of this book. Some of the thinking is definitely in there, um, but again, really transformed and not, you know, not, not just transposed and not just expanded. How did your writing and research process change between your, your two books and perhaps even between your dissertation and then the two books? Well, I think the, big, the biggest jump was probably, well, they were each jumps. You know, at the dissertation stage, I had more or less, so the dissertation is about letter writing practices and political organizing in the late 18th century, three 18th century, late 18th century revolutions. And I had a pretty clear idea that I was going to write about private letter writing. And then I had these three revolutionary targets. Source collections were pretty clear. There wasn't, you know, um, there was, I mean, expansive, but not endless source bases. And so I worked through those fairly comprehensively. For the first book, for, the, for Citizen Sailors, you know, the, the, the source base was potentially much, much greater. There was no way that I was going to be able to work through it absolutely comprehensively. Uh, and so there was much more of a process of selection, much more of a process of thinking about, here are the arguments that I think I want to make. Here, here's the arc that I see. You know, what kinds of sources, what kinds of bodies of sources can I go to to see if these claims are true or not and how they fit together. And so I would say there was a bit more of an argument driven research strategy with the, with the second, with the, with the first book. But in terms of the writing, the writing I would say was pretty similar from the dissertation to the first book. In each of them, I would write chapter length treatments of a body of sources slash a problem, you know, or a, or a claim. This book, the new one, the Age of Revolutions and the Generations Who Made It was very different because it's quite capacious in terms of its geographic and also to a lesser extent chronological reach. You know, there was absolutely no way that I could even imagine doing comprehensive research. I mean, I didn't even, it doesn't, it wouldn't even mean anything exactly. From the beginning, the idea was that it had to be a book that was a hybrid of synthesis of existing scholarship which is voluminous itself, and uh, a kind of primary source grounding that I thought was really, really important and really important that it carried through the book. You know, I didn't want to have parts of the book that were kind of rooted in primary sources and other parts that were just sort of secondary source based, because I thought that would make for a very 
disequilibrated book. So I really had to think about what the overall argument would be, how I was going to go about making the sort of central claims, and where I could find exemplary and persuasive illustrations of that point um, or of those points. And what, what it sort of ended up being, the writing, the re, both of the research and the writing process were very different. It really started out almost pointillist. So I actually wrote a lot of the book, this new book, in sections of about 2,000 to 3,000 words initially. They would be these sort of smaller, kind of research-dense usually, although sometimes they were just sort of summary or you know, synthetically dense readings of secondary scholarship. And I, in my mind, they were all connected, but there were several stages during the writing process when I would kind of, you know, I would start where I started putting them together. And I got a lot of comments that were like, I just can't understand how this makes any sense. And I would say, no, 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 it, it makes perfect sense. And here's why. But of course, that wasn't on the page. You know, there would be these incredibly abrupt transitions from one part of the Atlantic world to another or from one topic to another. And, and readers rightly would sort of, you know, what are you doing? But so in many ways, the, the process was more, um, it was like trying to get, well, you know, it was like inoculating a cheese. You know, I was like inoculating the cheese with lots of these little, you know, these little stabs, you know, like Roquefort or something where you inoculate it with these little stabs. And then the, the, um, the mold grows out from those stabs. You can still see the stab marks in some cases, but then it sort of permeates the, the cheese. Whereas the other ones were much more, you know, sort of putting a block on top of a block. So the, the process of writing this book was really very, very different. And researching it as well was very different. You sort of indicated earlier that that related to the question of outlining. Did you then like, did you reverse outline to try to figure, <laughs> figure out how, how the mold was growing? Yeah, sometimes I had to do reverse outlining. I would say more that this book, I had to do a lot more outlining of individual sections and of, of little pieces. And so I did end up doing a lot. I, I think I ended up doing a lot more, a number of versions of an outline of the whole and a lot of individual versions of outlines of smaller pieces. Um, again, because, you know, I was trying to make all of these pieces come together as much as is possible. I mean, part of the claim is that these pieces are disparate. And you don't just want to smush everything together into homogeneity, right? Um, that's American cheese, not good French cheese. But, you know, you want it to still be a solid and not, you know, soup or, you know, bits and pieces of fragments of things. And so I think outlining was actually more important to me in, in some ways in this, in this project than it was in previous ones, where I really, I really felt like I had to kind of keep telling myself, here's what I'm trying to do. Here's the story that I can dimly perceive, you know, what are all the pieces that need to be there for this story that I feel like I can perceive dimly or with increasing certainty? How can I make that apparent to someone, not me, for instance? To better understand how this process of narrative inoculation worked out in the finished book, I asked Nathan to read an excerpt and answer some questions about it for me. Here's Dr. Nathan Pearl Rosenthal reading from Chapter 1 of Age of Revolutions. Even for the best positioned and most talented, the road to success in the stratified world of the mid-18th century was long and uncertain. Louis-Augustin Bosque, born in 1759 to a moderately well-off family, was about 17 when the Lit de Justice of 1776 took place. The first decades of his life illustrate the steep challenges that his family, and millions of others like it encountered as they tried to rise in the unequal societies of the late old regime. Busk's father, Paul, had the energy of a man on the make. Before Louis-Augustin was born, Paul had already become a minor figure in Paris savant circles, publishing regularly with scientific academies and societies. The recognition he gained came slowly and in insufficient quantity. He felt his essays and experiments were ignored or slighted. In 1769, perhaps tired of seeking entry to the inner circles of Paris science, he accepted an offer to helm a new glass manufacturer near Saint-Flour in south-central France. While his father sought to advance, young Louis-Augustin ran wild, quote-unquote, at the home of his maternal grandmother. At the age of 10, he was sent to a boarding school in Dijon. 
Though the school was run by monks, the half-Protestant Busk found it welcoming and accommodating. His teachers did not insist that he appear at Mass, and they allowed him, perhaps even encouraged him, to read books by deists and skeptics. The school, too, was an element of his father's strategy. Because his maternal grandfather had been an artillery officer, the young Busk had a leg up on entry into the artillery corps. This called for a scientific and practical education, founded on mathematics. Latin and Greek might be fine for poets, but geometry, geometry and chemistry were what made the canons fire right. This did not keep Busk from imbibing great drafts of 18th century polite culture anyway, lessons in how to carry himself and converse. One of the things that you do so well in this book and that um, this, this section shows is how you use the lives of a few people to give readers a window into these much larger events happening in their world. What goes into crafting a few paragraphs like this, this kind of mini biography? Well, so I mean, maybe I should just say that, you know, say a little bit about the book it, it broadly um, to kind of contextualize these, the, the question, I mean, I assume every one of your person listening to this has already bought several copies of the book and offered them to all of your friends. Um, but if for some reason you haven't yet, um, here's what you need to know. Um, so this is a, a, a narrative history of the, the Atlantic Age of Revolutions from the 1760s to the 1820s, North America, South America, Caribbean, Europe, basically making the case that there is a, um, a revolution as a generational process in the Atlantic world with very distinct characteristics before and after 1800, the revolutions before 1800 really being captained by or piloted by or, you know, organized by a first generation born and grown up during the old regime and a second uh, wave of revolutions after 1800 uh, that are kind of staffed by, if you will, or, um, you know, led by a second generation that, that really is formed in the the chaos, the excitement, the disruptions of the, of the first revolutionary generation. So for me, it was enormously important in taking on a topic like the Age of Revolutions, which had sort of been my dream for a long time. And that's part of what I was saying about the dissertation. I think I was trying to get to the scale of the Age of Revolutions and you know, just realized I really couldn't do it in that format, in that um, context. Part of the, the mission, in a sense, in getting to this second book was to think about how to operate on this big wide scale but it seemed to me absolutely essential that it remain grounded in ordinary lives in everyday lives and in in kind of human experience i think one of the the things that's most challenging about working at this kind of scale is that historians i think are fundamentally were students of human beings human life and when you operate at the kind of scale of revolution, I think there's always a danger that you kind of lose track of the individual life, the individual lives, the individual, you know, ground the ground experience. And I would insist that that underground experience isn't just about ordinary people, right? Because even political leaders have everyday lives and everyday experiences. And so, so I really felt it was essential to keep connected to that. And that's part of why, you know, as you suggested, sort of threaded these biographical filaments through the book. So, you know, what, what goes into paragraph, a couple of paragraphs like this, and that was three paragraphs you had me read. Well, the first thing that goes into it is that it was, you know, in the first draft that I wrote of this, it was probably three times as long because I knew so much about it. I had so much to say, you know. I read Paul Busk's, you know, essays and thought about what he had to say about things and, you know, saw how grumpy he was and had a lot to say about that and, you know, wanted to put all of that in. And, and I showed it to readers and they said, why are we hearing all about, you know, is, do we really need to know this much? And of course they were right that they did not need to know that much. And so I had to reduce and reduce. But so these three paragraphs, it's actually a good selection because it includes both a bit of secondary reading. So Busk is somewhat, he actually has universal name recognition in the United States, even though nobody knows it. Um, he's the namesake of the Bosque pair. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he actually, everybody knows his name. Uh, it was named after him by another botanist. Uh, so there is a little bit written about him, some secondary literature, nothing very substantial. Then there are published sources, um, his father's uh, sort of uh, works which he actually edited. And then there's 
uh, a manuscript uh, basis to this as well. So some of this, some of this information came out of the uh, Bosque papers, which are in the Bibliothèque Historique de la Ville de Paris, the sort of city, the library of the city of Paris, which is an amazing place, an amazing, amazing place, has incredible collections and beautiful place to work, 17th century building, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, for me, when I read these those those paragraphs, I always think of the Bhvp and and working there with these um, with the Busk papers. In in I think actually some of these some of this stuff actually came out of he wrote a uh, he wrote up a um, and if not these paragraphs then other parts of the biographical study of Busk he wrote up a sort of autobiographical statement uh, in the early nineteenth century um, with the you know, eighteen teens probably um, which is in these papers uh, which is an extraordinary resource and. It gives you some of the kind of access to the interiority that one wants in a kind of biographical statement. And that's, that's often missing, I would say. Fantastic. You know, another thing I really admired in this book is that you move so smoothly between scale. As you mentioned earlier, this book goes from this kind of massive scale of the Atlantic world down to the individual. You also mentioned that in earlier drafts, you know, there was a, a reaction that some of what you'd written felt quite abrupt. And none of that comes through in the final thing. It, it moves so smoothly. It's remarkable. So, so I guess my sad question is, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, how do you make that flow so well? Well, first, thank you. I mean, I, it, cause it certainly is, that was, I would say one of the, you know, one of the big challenges and I think a, the, the success or failure of the book, at least as a, as an attempt to do this kind of thing depends to a great degree on the ability, its ability to move up and down, you know, the, the ladder of scales. I would say, you know, in a sense, this is the drama for any historian, um, you know, what Jacques Hevel called the jeu d'échelle, right? The kind of the game of scales where you've got to move up and down in levels of generality and levels of scale, as you say, from the individual to the social to, you know, the, maybe the planetary, depending how far you want to go, the interplanetary. Unfortunately, I don't think, or maybe fortunately, you know, there's no magic solution. I think it was a matter of trying over and over and over again to get from one scale to another, you know, to try to get from this individual to, to the collective. And in a way, I think what I actually found the hardest, um, and this was feedback that I got a, a couple times at a fairly advanced stage was that it, the, the thing that was the trickiest was the kind of middle term. In other words, that the, that the individual, you know, wasn't so bad and that the kind of biographical and the, the, the sort of depicting of the world around an individual, that was, you know, you were working out from the individual, that was okay. And the scale of kind of the national or the Atlantic or the transnational, that was also, I think, whatever, that felt pretty organic to me. And the scale that felt really difficult was the one between them in a way, the scale of, let's say, the social group, the scale of, you know, a caste group or a class group, and linking the individual lives to those intermediate groups. And then from those intermediate groups to, to the larger, the higher scales. But I mean, you know, you could pick any passage in the book, and I can probably show you how I had to cut or add or both cut and add. I mean, I, I will just cop to the fact, which I, is this proud? Is this shamefaced? I don't know. In the later stages of writing, I ended up at one point adding 30,000 words and then wow. cutting another 20,000 words. Mm. And this was after the manuscript was already roughly the length that it is now. So there was just a lot of kind of filling in a lot of filling gaps and then taking out a lot of things where I just, you know, where I had warmed to my subject as one does, you know, because I mean, you know, you know, you fall in love with the people fall in love. Sometimes you really, really hate them, but you know, you become interested in, you become intrigued by the people that you work on. And I, I happen to have, you know, some of the people that I chose to spend the most time with in this book, the sort of bi more biographical subjects I did for the most part really like them and find them kind of fascinating and kind of likable, maybe not, but, but engaging and kind of vivid. And so, you know, I just wanted to go on and on about them, but sometimes the reader doesn't really need you to. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it really is, it's, it feels like a cop-out, but I think the answer is trial and error. But I, I guess also maybe I should say one, one other thing that, you know, is, I think, you know, we haven't talked about, or you've talked about a little bit, but, you know, the question of, re, of you know, readers as, and, and comments. And that was one of the things that I most relied on readers for, you know, both other scholars, non-scholars, because um, a couple of non-scholars, several non-scholars read it as well. You know, I really wanted their help figuring out, you know, where am I just going on? You know, where can you not follow what I'm doing? Where is the jump too, too high? And that's, you know, I think one of the things that you can really get from a reader. In another episode of this podcast, Dan Bauck said that he likes to give readers a draft manuscript and say, just mark wherever you get bored, which I, I thought was brilliant. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I, I've never had the, the guts to actually say that to anyone because <laughs> I kind of don't want to know. But, but yes, I mean, I always wonder when is it that you get tired, right? When is it that you're, you lose interest? Definitely. Who do you rely on for that kind of feedback? So, I mean, I was really fortunate with this book. I mean, I can sort of say something about this book and then say something more general about feedback. But this book, I was really fortunate to have really generous colleagues who spent a lot of time reading. One particularly astonishingly generous colleague sent me something like 14 pages of comments. I had some two manuscript reviews where the colleagues were super duper helpful, really, you know, were encouraging, but also tough on a lot of things. And that was incredibly, incredibly helpful. And, you know, I also um, really benefited from my editor's this book is coming out with Basic Books, a trade press. And um, one of the real reasons that I wanted to work with my editor there, Brian Distelberg, is he has a repu well-deserved reputation for being an excellent reader. And he just read through it and he basically said, like, he tried to read it as a non-expert, you know, as a person, you know, standing in for the eyes of the non-specialist reader. And he said, like, here, I really just, I don't know what's going on here. You know, I feel like you're going on for too long here. I don't really fully understand where the argument is going. Um, and that, that was so helpful, so enormously helpful. So I felt like for this book, the thing that more, most helped me was having readers who were willing to plow through the whole messy manuscript or large segments of it. There were also lots and lots of people, and they're all thanked in the book, or many of them are, um, you know, who read individual chapters. And that was also especially for, you know, because some of the stuff is pretty far outside of my, you know, my, my home turf as a scholar, um, it was so, so helpful to get, be set right on all sorts of factual and interpretive matters. In general, I would say I have, you know, a handful of people who I consult pretty regularly when I'm writing most things. I have a pretty small group of people, I have a sort of a writing group and we've shared, we've been sharing stuff pretty regularly for a number of years, five or six years. Um, and that can be really helpful, you know, for almost any piece of writing. But yeah, I think the kind of just the fact of bouncing it off other people, it almost doesn't matter whether they're specialists. It doesn't matter whether they're, whether they have a huge amount of time to look at it, just having someone who can say, I mean, it's always great if it is a specialist and they have a huge amount of time, that's even better. But, you know, just having someone who can look at it and say, you know, this just doesn't hold together. Uh, I mean, I distinctly remember my graduate advisor once saying to me, his only comment on an essay that I'd spent, you know, like a month on his basic comment about it was this is very interesting but as it is the structure defeats the argument you know i mean it, he and he was completely right you know and that it ultimately turned into a published article sort of in part in responding to that but you know i think feedback doesn't necessarily need to be exhaustive to be extremely useful yeah absolutely are there people you like to read for inspiration as a writer with this project, I spent a lot of time thinking about sort of two things in sort of two phases. I, I mean, I'm making it make sense in retrospect in a way that it didn't at the time, probably. When I was sort of working up the project, I spent a lot of time thinking about how you write the story of something that's kind of too big to get your arms around it. How do you tell a story that's at a scale where you just can't do everything? Right. Because I, I come sort of coming out of the dissertation and write the, the dissertation mode that we're taught is, you know, I will know everything about 
this subject, right? And I was just sure that this was not going to be that kind of book. And so some of the things that I, that I found most, two, two books that really were always in my mind in some way or another were John Dos Passos's USA Trilogy, which is this attempt from the 20s, uh, 30s to, to kind of do a, a, a kind of panoramic history or, you know, account of the United States in the beginning of the 20th century. And there's just no way that he can do everything, right? And so he does, he has these biographical chapters. He has these chapters that are uh, sort of fictional narrative. And biographical, I mean, it's biographies of famous people, fictional narrative that's broken up across the book. And then, of course, you know, probably most famously, he has these sort of prose poems made of newspaper headlines. And there are, there are a couple of other sort of types of chapters. And, you know, he's very good in this thing called Camera Eye, which is sort of is these kind of almost stream of consciousness. And, you know, he actually wrote uh, in, in at the time he was asked, you know, what, you know, what is the purpose of this? And he explained like each of these is designed to give a different angle on the period. Um, and so I thought a lot about that as a way of, again, it's hard to translate, I think, to history because you can't make things up, unfortunately. I feel very jealous, I have to say, of my friends who write fiction. I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, you know, the ability to write the ending you want. But, you know, his, his idea of sort of putting together incommensurate parts to be more than the sum, than, you know, more than individual pieces, that the, the whole was more than the sum of its parts, I found very compelling. The other book that I thought about a fair amount coming into writing this book or working on this book was a completely different kind of book is The Golden Notebook, Doris Lessing, which, again, it was a very different kind of book. It's about a different kind of thing. It's about sort of a woman's inner life or maybe her soul. I don't know. Um, but again, it's something that's sort of ungraspable on its own terms. And I had this very vivid recollection of reading this book as a teenager. And I mean, I was so taken with it that I like created my own four notebooks to like take apart my thoughts into different categories and then, uh, you know, sort of try to bring them back together. But again, the idea of, you know, fragmentation to create a larger whole, I think that's the common thread there. And that, that, that sort of seemed to me the possible solution. I also got a very important insight from bizarrely a, uh, an article about a mathematician in, in the New Yorker that I once read on an airplane. And the mathematician said, you know, when I have a really difficult problem, this is a, a guy whose name I've now forgotten who lives in sort of a recluse. And he said, when I have a really difficult problem, you know, there are two ways of thinking about it. You can, you can think of it as like a nut and you've got to try to crack it and crack it and crack it. Or you can just put it in water and let the whole thing soften and then it opens up by itself. Or there's a metaphor of, you know, what if you have to cross, uh, you know, a barren wasteland with lots of sharp rocks? Now you could stumble across it or you could, again, this is assuming a kind of godlike control of the landscape. You just raise the water level and then you can cross smoothly in a boat. And so I think the idea again is sort of if a problem seems unresolvable, you've got to kind of go around it or outside of it rather than trying to just plow through it, right? So you don't try to write a comprehensive narrative of the age of revolutions the way you would write a comprehensive narrative of, I don't know, the coming of the American Revolution, itself a fairly capacious topic. Um, you know, you've got to find some other way of going at that. So those were things that I was thinking about as I went into the project. And once I was in it, then I was, so one, you know, there were a number of, then I felt like everywhere I looked when I read anything fictional, you know, I was very interested in the ways in which fiction writers very often will, you know, have threads of stories that don't quite intersect or intersect much later. I remember, you know, as I was working on the book, reading uh, Richard Powers, The Overstory, and thinking, wow, like, you know, for the first 200 pages of this book, you have no idea how these stories are going to come together. None. Or, you know, only a very dim sense of it. And if I remember correctly, I mean, this is now several years ago, but it's not until three quarters of the way through the book that you really have a sense of how at least one of the sort of narratives that's being threaded together actually intersects with the others. So that also I found, I found some encouragement in that. I don't know if, you know, I wasn't going to be able to do anything of that sort, both because I don't think I'm a sort of that kind of literary writer, but also, you know, I don't have the ability to make things happen in, you know, in my sources in the way that he does. But, but again, the idea that you have these 
disparate lives coming to a similar or a set of similar points. That struck me as really useful. And I think it's, you know, it's unusual for historians to do that. I mean, our, our, I think our way of writing history is, there are exceptions. I think you've interviewed a bunch of the people who are exceptions on this, on this podcast, but, um, you know, the vast majority of what's being, of what's written is, you know, doesn't take advantage, I think, of the kind of possibilities of bending chronology or of intersecting narratives or of, you know, layering in different ways. And I, I really, I'm not trying to be dismissive at all. I mean, I think I have pure admiration for well-done history of all kinds, but it is, it is striking how few historians seem to want to experiment or feel comfortable experimenting or allowed to by committees or, you know, publishers or what have you with kind of the possibilities of, of writing. So yeah, I think, I think our, our, our friends over in the world of fiction have a lot, have maybe a lot to teach us um, for, if we're ready to, for, you know, able to, to listen and, and able to use it, which I don't know that we all are, but but I think it's, yeah, it's pretty, that was certainly what I found most engaging and useful in some ways when I was working on this new book. What's the best writing advice you've ever gotten? I think I would have to say my undergraduate advisor, well, this is, I don't know if this is the best writing advice ever, but it's certainly the best scholarly writing advice. My undergraduate advisor, who was just an extraordinary mentor, she said to me at one point, Nathan, you have to listen to what readers say and to what they say is wrong, but you don't have to listen to how they think you should fix it. And I, I really, I think it's just incredibly sound advice. You know, the reader is always right in the sense that when they say, I don't understand this, there is no point in arguing with that point. But I think the burden of figuring out how to fix it is always on the writer, not on the reader. And, you know, it's, it's, look, we've all, anyone who's published a scholarly work of any kind, including an article, has experienced, you know, reader B, who thinks that everything you've done is terrible and also here's how to fix it. And I think it, it requires, you know, I, I just, I always have that advice in my ear that Reader B may be right that something is wrong here, but you don't have to listen to what they think is the solution to that problem. And in fact, Reader B is probably not the person who's best equipped to figure out how to fix it. And I can give you a, you know, a couple of examples from, from this new book. I mean, even, you know, I, I mentioned the extraordinary advice and, and feedback that I got from my editor. There were a couple of times where he would say, you know, the ending of this, the beginning of this chapter isn't working at all. It's not, you know, it, it's not clear what you're doing. And I would read it over again and I would think, you know, and he would make recommendations about how to fix it. And I would read it over and I would say, no, you know, actually, I think the problem, the actual problem is the end of the previous chapter. And, you know, is that like a brilliant insight? No. But the point is, I mean, I think you cannot argue with the person who reads and says this isn't working, but figuring out what it is that needs to happen to fix it, I think, is, is, is very much the, the writer's job and the writer's responsibility and and you need to assume that response i mean it's both a privilege and a responsibility and and i think i i always feel like it's yeah it's kind of liberating to say you know thank you you've told me what doesn't work and now now i'm going to figure out how to make that better you know and and hopefully you can i mean that's the that's always the other problem is sometimes sure. it doesn't seem fixable but <laughs> mostly it does uh, before i let you go is there anything you're working on now that you're up for talking about yeah, I'm working on a, I'm in France this year, and I'm working on a new project about um, prize law. So a global history of maritime prize law. So this is the law that governs captures of ships and cargoes at sea. And basically, I'm interested in the ways in which prize law is functions across really the whole early modern period from the 16th century through the, even the end of the 19th century as a way of both constructing and deconstructing empire through the, the, the medium of private property um, and private property relations. And it's, it, in some ways, it has, you know, I mean, I think of it as a global history, and I really do intend for this time to get to 
South Asia and, um, you know, in the Pacific. And I have sources that take me there. So in that sense, it, it has kind of the scope of the, um, or even a greater scope than the Asia Revolutions book. What's different though, is I'm really working with prize law, with prize, with prize cases. And that's a very esoteric, but very well-defined body of sources, but which kind of gets you everywhere um, all around the world. So it's an interesting, it's been an interesting experience to be reading case after case after case after case, you know, a very different experience from writing the Age of Revolutions and researching the Age of Revolutions, where, you know, I was sometimes slaloming as I was doing the research from one kind of source to another, from one body of sources to another. This is very much one, you know, coherent body of sources and gigantic, but coherent. And so it's a, it's a, I mean, I have a colleague who said, you know, I think every project should give you a new challenge, a new adventure, you know, that that's what this sort of this métier that's, you know, this profession is all about. And I, I really agree with that. Uh, and so that, yeah, this is my, my new challenge, I guess. And the new fun thing that I'm trying to do is to figure out how to, you know, how to tell this connected global story out of this very dense, very somewhat abstruse, but I think really with tentacles in every corner kind of set of sources. So yeah, I'm very excited about it. Sounds like an excellent challenge to me. Dr. Nathan Pearl Rosenthal, thanks so much for joining me on Drafting the Past. It's really been a pleasure to talk about your writing process. Thanks so much for having me. This was really great. Thanks again to Dr. Nathan Pearl Rosenthal for joining me on Drafting the Past. Thanks to you for listening. This show would not be possible without your support, whether that's listening, sharing episodes with your friends, or donating to keep me going. I'd love to hear how you're using the show, too. Don't forget to check out DraftingThePast.com for show notes and more, including links to all of the books we talked about in this episode. Until next time, remember that friends don't let friends write boring history. <laughs>